0: Hello, and welcome to the King Hero's Journey Podcast. My name is Beth Martins. I am here today with Aaron Abke, who is, I would call, a spiritual teacher. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just get Rockfin going while we're waiting for a few people to find us here on, uh, we are on YouTube and Fakebook, which is intensely <laughs> suppressed. That one, ah, I always end up with about 10 views on there. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we are live on Rockfin, so there is a link already in the chat if you want to grab that, if you prefer to jump over there. And hello to people on Rockfin as well. And Missy Bear is here. You got great attendance. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for, for uh, having the interest, and Michelle, welcome as well. So, Aaron, it's so great to meet you. You and I got connected through Cal Washington. I think we are both mutual fans of him and the InPower movement.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: yeah, when I heard that discussion, it was so just beautiful because I could see the match of the energies that you guys were really getting each other. Uh, Cal is Mm -hmm. very deep and you are very deep. And then the meeting was so satisfying. So I do recommend people go and and find that uh, interview that you did of Cal over on your YouTube. um, And I will grab a link to that. I can get it for you. You you can. Okay, that would be great. There's a private chat here. On StreamYard, you must know. Oh, Anastasia, nice to see you. And Billing TunnelBear. And while you're doing that, I'll just say that uh, in the House of Free Will, we had our first movie event yesterday, which was super fun. And Aaron, have you watched the movie called Frequencies from 2013?
1: Frequencies? No, I don't think I have.
0: It's a must-see. So shout out to... Sounds good. Yeah. Shout out to Crow777, who recently did, in September, they did a, a kind of review of it. So I saw the movie, then I caught the review. That was super helpful because there's so many layers of really uh, deep messages in there and lots of symbolism and things to unpack. And uh, so, yeah, highly recommend the the Crow 777 uh, interview. And yeah, too bad you missed it, uh, Billy Tono. We're going to have, uh, just so, for anybody who did miss it, we're going to have a debrief tomorrow. So there's still time for you to watch the movie on your own. And then at uh, noon tomorrow, we're going to meet again. For that, in the House of Free Will, the House of Free Will is my private association, and there is the link for, with the interview with Cal. Fantastic! Oh, and Veronica's here. All the friends are coming. Excellent.
1: <laughs> Hello, friends.
0: <laughs> so good. I really love this role. I, I, um, I imagine you must as well. It's so engaging, and uh, get to see who your people are, and get to know them over time.
1: I love going live and just chatting with people, and like feeling like you're actually in a community, even though you're sitting alone in your office.
0: Exactly, you got it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. So thanks to all these platforms that, uh, you know, censor us and don't love us, but nonetheless, (laughs) we
1: We forgive them.
0: We forgive them because I I come here humbly, honestly. I'm I'm happy to uh, to have the opportunity to do this, and uh, yeah. So Aaron, I would love you to introduce yourself. I uh, you have a great about page with a good timeline, actually which I always find helpful because you can see a little bit of the evolution of how you came to where you are right now. And, um, so maybe I'll let you, uh, say about yourself if that's all right.
1: Sure. Yeah. The short summary would be that I grew up as a pastor's kid in the Bay area of California and, uh, it was just some of the most wonderful years of my life, to be honest, I had amazing, have amazing parents. They're still alive. Um, had an amazing church. Our family's church was called Springs of Life Fellowship. And I was kind of lucky that the brand of Christianity I grew up in was not super fundamentalist or dogmatic, but we were what you would call spirit filled evangelical. And we did a ton of, you know, revival services, healing services, worship services. I grew up worshiping, you know, three days a week with my church community sometimes. And so that's what I wanted to do uh, was to follow in my dad's footsteps. And become a pastor one day. So I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, graduated with my degree in uh, music and theology. Ah. And then I began uh, as a full-time worship pastor in San Jose, California. And that's kind of when my spiritual awakening first began, which was first the awakening out of religion, uh, the first eggshell that I was in. And that was really tough because, you know, from 18 years old, I started to question a lot of the dogmatic things in Christianity, such as hell, the rapture, biblical inerrancy, and just things that didn't resonate with the God that I was in a relationship with in my heart. And so at 23, it just came to a head because of this church I was working at, which was very fundamentalist and legalistic. And it feels a lot like it feels today in the world where like, you know, the the government wants to take all your freedoms away and really restrict your rights. It's kind of how I felt working, working at that church. And I was like, not allowed to say certain things on stage as I led worship. And so universe really put me in a place that forced me to question my religious beliefs. And so I had just gotten married at that time, uh, just a few months before taking the job and kind of just blew up my life, told my pastor I had to leave the church And went back to Tulsa to live with my, at the time, my wife's parents and um, just kind of rediscover what spirituality meant to me and who God was to me. And so I went first into like Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle and classic kind of enlightenment teachers. And then later got into um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Eastern teachings, Uh, spent a solid probably six months obsessed with near-death experiences. Mm after I um, kind of admitted to myself I wasn't a Christian anymore, then for the first time ever, I'm kind of open to this idea of, is there a God? And was really terrified of the idea that there might not be a God. And I've been fooling myself this whole time that I was in a relationship with God. Um, So then near-death experiences became my savior from that fear because very quickly I saw that virtually every single one of the thousands of NDEs that I've read or listened to all say the same things, which is that there is an intelligent, infinitely loving source of all life that we meet once we leave the body. And we very much experience our same sense of self beyond the body. And once we meet, they usually will call it the light or source or God. We have a life review where we judge ourselves based on the, the righteousness or unrighteousness of our actions on earth. And based on our life review, we get a new perspective on what life is and who I am and why I'm here and what life's all about. And so that really just empowered me so much and gave me so much freedom that I felt like that was all along the God that I knew in Christianity, that it's, it, it can't possibly be this penal substitution model that says you got one life, one shot only to get all the answers right. And if you fail, it's an eternal punishment. Even though it was a very finite test you were put through, none of that ever resonated, right? So I kind of left Christianity for a while, went to the Eastern stuff, and that was very good for me for a while because I had a lot of the, what I would call like the feminine essence of spirituality, which is devotion to God, love for God, worshiping God. But I didn't have a good masculine foundation for the divine, which is the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom of who God is. So the East does that really well, right? They really lay out oneness, non-duality. And uh, after a certain you know, time in Eastern teachings, I, start to, I started to feel kind of dry inside and like my spirituality was dry and tasteless. It was just knowledge and intellectual concepts. And I was craving for something that I once knew. And so I kind of returned back to Christianity, and in a sense, definitely you know mystical type of Christianity, but really rediscovered Jesus in a whole new way. That uh, Jesus very much was an enlightened master, just like Buddha and many masters from the East. And he, you know, he had very limited language available to him to put his enlightenment teachings to the the Jews of his day in the first century. But nevertheless, he was teaching all the same things. And so my my view of the Bible, my view of Christ just exploded into a whole new dimension after really getting a a well-rounded reference frame for spirituality around the world and how many cultures view divinity. So I think it was like the infusion of East and West or feminine masculine that really synergized for me, you know, where I'm at today, what I teach today on whether you call it enlightenment or spiritual ascension, it's, it's all just about knowing yourself and you can't know yourself fully without both the heart, the feminine and the mind, the masculine, you know, we need self-love and self-knowledge equally. So that's a lot about what I teach today is just balancing heart and mind, heart and mind coherence. And I just find it to be an endlessly um, beautiful and enjoyable subject to teach about.
0: Oh, nice. What a great introduction. I love that. And uh, just say hi to John Wills. Welcome, an, an indoctrinated great name. Tree do this year. And uh, Gloria, right on. Maybe you already know Aaron's work. It might be right up your alley. Uh, so, yeah, so many great points in there that I would love to talk about. Um, first of all, at what point? Did you, I just always like to know, did you awaken to like the agendas that are going on and see through, you know, because what I've noticed is that a lot of those that are into spirituality didn't wake up. Yeah. They, they couldn't see it. Some of my all time favorite authors like Carolyn Miss, I often credit her for uh, some of my work, but um, is she just hogtied by publishers and contracts couldn't, couldn't say the truth if she wanted to, Mm -hmm. or what, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, same here. I mean, I was very surprised at, um, the lack of awareness and many teachers, people, uh, leaders who I, I believe have great awareness. Uh, you know, it just goes to show that reality is always beyond our understanding and, and very much has surprises up its sleeves for us all the time. I was on a, uh, a, a really popular, kind of YouTube spiritual show called Buddha at the gas pump in 2020, I believe just after the pandemic began. And, um, the, the host of that channel, uh, he, he, interviews enlightenment teachers for the last like 10 years and he has a pretty big channel. He's interviewed every mainstream spiritual teacher you've ever heard of. And, uh, I got this email from him a few months into 2021 i believe where he was like hey you know i've heard from people that you've been talking negatively about the you know what the pokey pokey and um you know that's very disturbing to me and i'd like to bring you on my show to debate a doctor (laughs) i was like am i is this guy joking i thought he was joking at first and uh first of all as a caveat I, i never spoke ill of it or told people not to take it i just said hey here's a history of these pharmaceutical companies who are purporting this um, product for you. And, uh, you know, it's good to know that they've been convicted of serial felonies dozens of times every single year, paying billions of dollars for knowingly, purposefully lying about their medications that they know do great harm. And they lie and say that they don't do harm. Then they get caught. They pay a few billion, move on, rinse, repeat. Um, Just take that into account before you run off to the local, you know, clinic to get your product. And uh, that's all I said. I was just trying to raise awareness and got a lot of criticism from people in the spiritual community. So that was a wake up for me in a a kind of another dimension of just understanding uh, the dynamics of the world. But for me personally, to answer your question, it was for sure the, the pandemic of 2020 that really woke me up. I think up to that point, I had been doing what most of us do, which is kind of projecting our light onto the world and saying, hey, you know, I have good intentions. I'm sure everyone out there has good intentions. It's, it's a good world I'm living in. And of course it is. But uh, the the social complex of the world, of collective consciousness of humanity, as I came to find out, was, you know, way more corrupt than I could have possibly imagined. And I think it is still more corrupt than I can possibly imagine uh, or any of us listening to this, I think we probably still only know, you know a fraction of what really goes on in the darkness, so to speak. But thankfully, source is bringing that shadow to the light now as our planet's really kind of transitioning into a higher level of consciousness. And uh, so we're kind of doing this collective shadow work, right? Where all of the karma from humanity's history, the greed, the corruption, the abuse, the war, it has to come to the surface to be seen and to be forgiven and healed so we can move forward into a new world. And uh, it's the exact same thing we do in ourselves to heal our own shadows, right? We got to see those parts of us, become aware of them, and then forgive them with love, and then move forward with new wisdom. And humanity is trying to do that now, and I think is doing a great job on one hand. But on the other hand, I think humanity's just kind of collected so much karma over the last few thousand years, that we may be in for a pretty tough ride for a while. And so my constant message to my audience is just continue to raise your frequency, continue to embody more love, more light. And that's really all we can do other than raising awareness and being of service. And I think that the biggest impact we have is our own spirituality. Uh, I believe that the whole collective is one kind of singular mind, or we call it the collective consciousness. And so each one of us that raises our frequency by healing and by embodying love, we are lifting the consciousness of the planet gradually. Um, so that's really my mission and my passion in life right now.
0: I love that. Yeah, great answer. I was uh, only a few years uh, ahead with the wake up, bored in the face, like, and, and I can t- so relate to how you were talking about it that I just really focused in on my own work all the time. And I knew it was bad out there, but I wasn't one for reading newspapers and and listening to the the fear porn. Like I already knew that mm-hmm. it was not Same a part. healthy thing, uh, but I didn't know how bad it was. You know, there was definitely a some on my part where there, it was it was a, a denial, and then all of a sudden I couldn't deny anymore because I had people in front of me and clear seeing and circumstances and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I just had to go through that door and die to my vision of the world that, uh, again, I knew was bad, but holy mackerel and wake up. In, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Holy w- ho- uh, wake up in a nightmare. Flats max said exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, um,
1: can I say one more thing about that? Yes, actually? of course. You know, you were just talking about being surprised at some of the maybe non-reaction of spiritual leaders. Um, I mentioned a few as well, and really just like if you're on social media in the spiritual community, you know, you'll be surprised at how much judgment comes up. I've been surprised at how much judgment comes up when I bring up world issues from a, just a lens of awareness of, hey, let's send love and light to uh, the Middle East right now and pray for peace. Um, you know, I'll get people that say, like, you shouldn't ever talk about the world. The world is an illusion. We should just meditate, et cetera, et cetera. It's not spiritual to talk about world issues is the theme I hear. And to me, that's indicative of someone who bypasses their own shadows because the way you are with one thing is the way you are with everything. Duality is the belief that there's a difference or a separation between my inner world and my outer world, that they're apart from one another, right? And so if I'm not in the attitude of wanting to become aware of my shadows, you know, praying to God every day, please show me where I am out of alignment with truth. You know, Show me where I, where I need to see my blind spots. Show me how I can be more loving. If that's not your attitude, then you'll have that same attitude towards the world and say, oh, come on, stop talking about the wars. The war is in your mind. It doesn't exist out there. And these kind of spiritual platitudes, which have truth to them, of course, but they're being taken to this extreme to justify bypassing. And so me, to me, I really see that the most spiritual thing that there is, is to be of service to others to bring healing to those who suffer, to be, a, to be love and light to the world that needs it. There's nothing more spiritual than, as Jesus said, being in the world, but not of the world, meaning I'm not absorbed in the thought system of the world. I don't abide by the thinking of the world. I don't believe my authority comes from a government or an institution. But nevertheless, I'm still in that world because that world needs my light.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And, and then in the process of dropping the bypass and picking up the service, it turns into your hero's journey, which is, you can tell the theme here that we're talking about, right? That it's not just about going and sitting on a mountain and being in in bliss and and you're happy now and, you know, screw everybody.
1: Yeah. Good luck (laughs) luck up there.
0: Good luck up there. Good luck up there. And it is, it is actually in and of itself, a very dangerous path. Because there is the possibility to um, to raise the frequency, but bypass the shadow, mm-hmm. and I saw so many examples of that where uh, people were really chase and I'll say chasing the dragon, mm-hmm. chasing chasing enlightenment as a kind of I use of that drug phrase
1: drug. all the time.
0: There you go. Yeah, Ch- chasing it like a kind of drug. Because who doesn't love, you know, I I went to India eight times. I did study with the guru on the mountain, that uh, white bearded guy who turned out to be a pedophile in the end, you know, not right. And a kind of example of how that ascension path can go. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
0: um, and then, you know, the, the, I just have the memories of people flipping out, like doing so much breath work and so much Kundalini kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then next thing, you know, they're running naked through the village they lost it and they need to shut the you know, they need to like you know contain and, and restrain them. <laughs> wow because they you know and probably what you're saying that they just lost the connection. certain parts grew and other parts were necessarily suppressed because they don't match up with enlightenment. So, mm-hmm. and that's what I found in a lot of the spiritual communities is that there was such zero tolerance for even expressing any shadow or saying that you didn't feel good or that you yeah. know you, you were sad or anything like that. It would be that you just get this kind of slap, slap, slap. Wow. What's wrong with you? And yeah, so it's taken me twenty years to really unpack this, but I see how now my my big uh, conclusion about it and i used to i used to teach this too you know it's all about doing the inner work so you can can raise your energy and mm-hmm. and the fact is i discovered that as you grow into the higher frequencies you're also simultaneously either growing or unearthing maybe both mm-hmm. right and yep. and then when you're supposed to be spiritual you're supposed to be loving you're supposed to be all of this kind of stuff you have even more motivation to suppress that lower stuff. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this inner war and they become, they can, they can actually be a danger to themselves and to others from that place. So.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with everything you're saying. There's a, definitely a danger of the spiritual ego becoming, you know, kind of weaponized against you when you study spirituality and you learn all these high level spiritual concepts the ego can try to can use those concepts against you and really drag you away from the now and from groundedness and your physicality. And so I, I see Ascension like the picture of a tree growing in the dirt. If you've seen those pictures where it shows like a faraway image of a tree and you see the root system beneath, and it's like a perfect image of the roots going just as deep as the branches go high. Uh, that to me is the the picture of spiritual Ascension. It's that Ascension through integration and where this comes from for me is a text called the Law of One, which talks about how basically here in what what the text calls the third density of consciousness, of which there are seven densities. Uh, the seven densities correlate to the seven energy centers. The third density would be the third uh, chakra, the solar plexus, which is kind of the ego chakra, known as the ego chakra, where the ego comes into full activation. And it's the density of separation consciousness, where consciousness believes it's separate and apart from others. And so there's war, there's tribalism and all the atrocities we see. And eventually after so long of consciousness wrestling with those catalysts, it learns and experiences that there's a higher way of being, which is called love or unity. And that's where we enter the fourth density or the fourth chakra, which is the heart chakra, And that's the density of love and oneness. And so humanity's at that precipice of beginning to try and transition to the fourth density and uh, learning from its healing, its third density karma, as we said. And so the, the law of one says, we're basically here to balance and purify our lower three energy centers. And the lower three is the red, orange, yellow root sacral solar plexus chakras. And those are basically what's called the primal chakras. Those are what make us a human being, a personal self, a social self, and how we show up in the world. And so, every kind of atrocity that there is, every kind of, uh, you know, if we want to call it sin or evil or whatever, any kind of unloving action comes from an imbalance or a blockage in one of those lower three centers Uh, selfishness, greed, pride, insecurity, lack, grief, depression, shame, fear. These are blockages, right? And so, The spiritual path of ascension is to go into that darkness, go into those blockages and bring light to them. And where we get hung up or where people can go astray on the enlightenment path is when they're in too much of a rush to try to get to the bliss, but they haven't really done the work to earn it yet, which is working in those lower three centers, meeting my pride, looking at it, seeing it, acknowledging it and saying, okay, yes, there is a part of me that's extremely selfish. I want to heal that part of me and balance it with love. Uh, there is a part of me that's extremely insecure and devalues myself. I want to love that part of me. And that's the, that's the not fun work that people don't want to do to ascend their consciousness. Everybody just wants to meditate, chant, do kundalini breath work, and hope that they can just blast their consciousness up to the third eye or something. And uh, it doesn't work like that. In fact, there's a kind of metaphysical imbalance in our energy when we reach, reach, reach for higher states. When we have a lot of shadows and blockages in the lower energy centers, it causes a kind of rebounding effect where people can lose their minds. People can go insane. You can kind of um, fry the circuits of your seven energy centers if you're always trying to reach higher before you've integrated the lower. And so, again, that's really like everything I teach in my programs is how to do that inner work and that shadow work so that we can actually earn love and peace and bliss as on a natural level basis to where we don't need to go meditate on a mountain all day to feel bliss. We're just carrying bliss with us everywhere we go because we're aware of oneness. We're aware of God. We're aware of love. And so we just naturally bring it to our world. Right.
0: Nice. I love it. <laughs> so good. Kind of, so I got kind of a question, my intuition around, around things. And, and I was like, Oh my gosh, am I going to have to apologize or like zip my, but we're, we're actually uh, on the same page. I love that. Um, there's so many, so many uh, good points here. Let's see what to dive into first around. Um, first of all, let's talk about near-death experiences because I had one myself, thought I was mm. dying at one point, wrote about it in my book. If you're into it, I will send you a copy of my book. I think I might have offered that. And, uh, Amazing. Yeah, it was... Uh, You know, and I I don't know if it was one of those like classic ones where, because I didn't see the tunnel and all of those kind of things, but it was. I thought it was my moment. I allowed myself to die, and then the discovery was what what the illusion of death actually is. Mm -hmm. Because I went through it. I let I let it have me, and and uh, when I got to the other side, it it was not anything like you would expect. (laughs) Wow. Uh, You know, it, it it was pure wide open. It was it was like pure potential pure joy like the joy that i felt on the other side was phenomenal even though my body was gone couldn't couldn't function couldn't sit up anymore and uh and and having that vision of myself it was i felt like that's when i downloaded my purpose, so to speak. Now that happens every day too. So I don't want to mystify that too much, but, but there was a real sense of like, I'm here, I'm here for something and I'm here for someone. That was another thing I, I was all all of a sudden very clear about how purpose doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And um, so I won't go on and on about that, but the, just to affirm the discovery that you were making around that, how, you know, to me, that is the real, that is the real enemy, our perception of death and our unwillingness to face that core fear of it. I like how you're talking about the primal chakras. I talk about the primal archetypes, of, a, mm. of a course, and the five primal archetypes, and they govern over our, our life and death experiences and how we tend to, you know, we, of course, we want the life, but unconsciously, we don't want the life. Mm-hmm. And you know we we don't want death, but unconsciously, there can be a wanting for death, especially in a society where we're so programmed to the nines with all kinds of uh, fear and and that kind yeah. of thing. so uh, that that that's really fun. Um, um, let's see. I just want to no, no, okay, this is a big subject around oneness in christianity. this This had me uh, had a bunch of people break up with me when I even entertained the idea, because, you know, I, I'll say I grew up my spirituality in a, in a context of oneness. Mm. And, and that's not just the thought of it. That's the direct experience that things are not disconnected. Like, you know, once you dissolve that programming that says you're separate, then you're one. It's irrefutable. Mm -hmm. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. And and uh, but it was a, a huge offense to some of the Christians in my world. Why do I you know. think that is? Have you run against up against that?
1: Oh, of course, yeah. That was one of the first big blocks I ran up against when I kind of started to leave Christianity. You know, I when you leave a religion, you're it's like leaving a cult or something. You've you only know people in your religion. I didn't have a single friend that wasn't Christian because you're not allowed to have friends that aren't Christians, and why would you want to? Because they oppose your belief system. So I only had Christian friends, parents, every part of every single person in my family, hardcore Christian. So it was like saying goodbye to Aaron Apke in a nutshell. And that was hard because I only knew myself as Aaron Apke, the Christian. Who's Aaron without being a Christian? And so when I started to discover enlightenment teachings about oneness, I started to see Jesus through that lens and say, oh, Jesus was teaching this. I and my father are one. I know. Yeah, like pretty, pretty clear there. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so when I would try to post about that on Facebook, I'd get a lot of angry Christians and I just couldn't quite understand why they were averse to the idea of oneness. And I found it very interesting because I'm like, I just came out of this belief system and, you know, oneness is still kind of a new concept for me. And yet I all of a sudden cannot relate to my old belief system. I can't even remember how I could have thought that way. It felt so foreign and strange. And I mean, I was questioning a lot of my beliefs from my teenage years, but nevertheless, you know, I had, um, people, uh, pastor, a lot of pastor friends message me and tell me to be careful over and over again. The things you're posting are very dangerous. And I would be like, please explain how me saying God is the only power that exists. Only God is real. Nothing else is real. And what is not real has no power. Like, what about that is dangerous? And can you, do you disagree? I mean, Christians say that God's omnipotent, omnipresent. And it's like, well, do you know that there's nothing opposite to omnipresence? (laughs) You know, that's oneness. There's just God. And so that's where we get into the paradox of, well, then how do we see all these evil things happening in the world if evil doesn't exist? And I firmly believe, and it is my direct experience now that evil doesn't exist. So what is it? And I would summarize by saying it's ignorance of truth, it's spiritual blindness, it's divine beings who are asleep in the dream, who don't know who they are. And so because there's only one power acting in the universe, God's power, the God energy, it's infused in all things, pervading all things everywhere. Then if certain beings don't know that they are God in human form, if they don't know that everything is God and they are themselves endowed with the God power, then they misuse it to abuse and control and enslave others. And God in, in God's desire for relationship and love and intimacy cannot impose upon us, right? That would violate everything God was trying to do by creating the universe God wanted to experience itself, have relationship with itself, love itself. So it had to make a universe to do that. And so if God forces everyone to be loving and righteous, then love has no meaning anymore. It only has meaning if it's chosen in opposition to its contrast, which is fear and separation and all of that. So in you know, non-duality and spirituality, we, we often say things like fear is an illusion, evil is an illusion, separation is an illusion. And so that is tricky for people because they're like, oh yeah, people are getting bombed in Gaza that are illusions, right? That's all an illusion. And what we don't mean is it isn't being experienced or people aren't experiencing being bombed. That's not what an illusion means. An illusion by definition is something that depends on something else in order to exist. Something that is not self-sustaining in and of itself. And so war depends upon what? the animosity of two people groups judging and hating each other before war can happen. In peace, harmony, and oneness, war is impossible. So in reality, God's reality, the kingdom of heaven, there is no such thing as war. There's no such thing as murder. These are all illusions that depend on thoughts in the mind of separation. And without those thoughts, they do not exist. But what always exists is that oneness, is that harmony, that truth, and that love. And so we're trying to embody what is real and heal what is not real, right? In our mind, the illusion that we're separate, the illusion of fear, which you experienced and described in your near-death experience, you got to have the firsthand experience that death does not exist. There is no such thing as death. There's just transitioning from life to life. And so the whole world is being run by this illusion, You know, everyone's terrified of death. The whole pandemic was about the fear of death. War is about the fear of death. Everything, every fear in the world, you can trace it back to the fear of death. Yes. So there's the ultimate illusion for you.
0: You got it. You got it. According to me, that is. (laughs) (laughs) And so I love everything that you said. Um, Can you still relate to a God, the father at all? Did you carry that forward or did it kind of get... lost in that
1: very much so yeah
0: it's a beautiful thing i -hmm. picked you know yeah i i I, it really was transforming to pick that up and then so that can be one of i don't know if you're familiar with uh, daniel david i Mm am uh oskopensky is his last name and so he was the one that helped me transition it was like the you know to the day that i had a lot of cancels from christians he came into my world and he also comes very very similar in, in, in the trajectory how how you've come through. And so you talked about the masculine and the feminine. And then um, so so do you think it's possible that Christianity just completely suppressed the feminine in that respect? Like do you see, do you see God the Father as as contained unto like as as the pure source? Or are you are you seeing it more like a masculine feminine kind mm-hmm. of a thing?
1: Yeah, I think you know God the Father is just a a term we use to allude to the infinite being, right? That that we all are the great I am. But uh, when we refer to God as Father, to me, it's like referring to the masculine attributes of the divine. And I can also refer to God as the Mother, the great eternal Mother, which of course God is. What else creates? What else? What else birthed the universe? But, you know, Christianity would say that that's a no-no. You don't call God a woman. God's a man, for sure. So I think Christianity, it's an interesting question, Beth, because on one hand, I mentioned Christianity has a lot of the really great feminine components. And I would say, let's say evangelical Christianity, because I've been in like Baptist churches that are just completely dry and dead, no feminine at all. There's not a single heart in the room activated. It's just bland. Biblical teachings with no heart activation at all, but the Christianity that I grew up in was very heart-centered. We worshiped constantly. We poured our heart out. We weren't afraid to get intimate with God in church, but then it's also very like patriarchal in a lot of senses in that women are seen as inferior to men. Like This was actually one of the things that woke me up at the church I worked at was uh, there was three like big events that happened that like broke the camel's back for me. And the, I think it was the first of the three events. Yeah, it was the first. Was that uh, like my first week of being ushered in as the new worship pastor. I'm announced, everyone claps. Welcome, Aaron, so great to have you. I do a worship set and then I go sit on the front row next to the pastor. And this woman walks on stage during the off tithes and offering. And a man is kind of walking a few paces behind her. And she stands up to the mic and the man stands, you know, like three feet behind her with his arms kind of folded like a bodyguard in front of him. And I was like, what is going on here? This is interesting. And she gives this whole tithes and offering testimony. And then she puts the mic down and walks back. And I was like, Oh my goodness, is this what I think it is? And sure enough, the man sat right next to her and grabbed her hand and they sat there holding hands and I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that was her husband. I thought it was just a bodyguard. Like maybe the church has had some weird stuff happen and they need bodyguards on stage. But nope, it was her husband. And the reason I was kind of like anticipating this is because I grew up as a Christian, very familiar with the verses in the New Testament, the epistles where Paul says things like, it's a shameful thing for a woman to even speak in church. And if a woman does have to speak in church, her husband should stand behind her as, his, as her covering. Because the woman sinned first and then the man. So like women are inherently more sinful, apparently, <laughs> which is like, oh yeah, let's look at prison rates and you know who participates in murder the most and stuff. It's like 90% men, obviously. So anyway, I was blown away by that because I'm like, oh no, I just got hired at a church that believes this dogmatic crap that I don't believe. And like, how am I gonna stomach this? And so that was my first like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here moment. And then two more things happened that I was like, I got to leave this place ASAP. So it's interesting that you asked that because while it's masculine dominated in that almost every church is going to be led by a man, you'll be hard pressed to find a female head pastor at any church. Uh, Very, very few over the generations that's happened. But at the same time, what I see as masculine is the wisdom element of spirituality, of understanding the nature of the divine. Christianity has that completely twisted and disintegrated. They have they have almost no real understanding of the divine. They make up a bunch of crazy ideas that have no basis in logic or reason. And even the Bible defies in many verses. Jesus certainly did. And yet they go on believing them because there's this like that kind of masculine ego of I'm right and I know I'm right. And they double down on it. So it's like a very distorted masculine running the show in Christianity with, uh, in some, in some branches of Christianity, they allow the feminine to express only in worship and then suppress. Let's go back to the masculine. It's really more about teaching, but the teachings are totally off basis with eternal truth. And so that's why, again, I felt this need to like leave Christian teachings altogether for a while, about seven years, and just study Eastern teachings because I needed that that spiritual wisdom that I felt I was lacking. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Yeah, really good. That's um, in a way what inspired this whole podcast in the first place was just my own personal awakening to how in in a way we've got, um, uh, we've come to things backwards. I I don't want to use inversion because that's a a different meaning, but uh, so i was very indoctrinated for one reason or another as a child in, into feminism you know and, and battling against the man standing behind the woman or controlling the woman or you know so that that would have been of great offense to me in in those mm-hmm. days and um, and then you know up on my pedestal and feeling like Men were responsible for all the ills in the world, and getting on my soapbox soap and talking like that, and had a whole community of women that were very disappointed in me, I have to say, when I came clean. and <laughs> um, and then, when my father died, and I was able to see through like how much of that, what I was battling out there was right here. Mm. and was able to clean up on on my own masculine and stop making it the enemy and then what i love like i hope you don't mind i know you're married and everything but you know you're you're very masculine and so i can see the i can see the balance there that of that that healthy right that when when there's an imbalance it it shows itself it can it it, it comes aclo- across as either exaggerated feminine or exaggerated masculine yeah. and uh, and so it's it's just a really beautiful illusion to wake up from mm-hmm. that war that war that has been enacted on us yeah. Um yeah, so uh another another point that when you were talking about Jesus and you had you know you said you Christ exploded for you after you left the the religion mm-hmm. of that which is really fun. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh and then what was I going to ask you about that just how it is of again great offense to those that consider themselves Christians that that um Jesus is just one of the enlightened or ascended masters Mm -hmm. and so do you think that first of all do do you do you see that there's a historical role that jesus has played in formation of our human collective consciousness as you put it uh or do you think that it's more of that allegorical thing that's come forward that a lot of people talk about it like astrotheology and that jesus Mm -hmm. is more like of a symbolic archetype what's your take on that
1: Another interesting question. I think the person Jesus, without any doubt, historically, for sure existed. And I think that even the teachings of Jesus uh, prove that the man Jesus really existed. There was an enlightened master named Yeshua or Yahushua in the first century, no doubt about it, that started a very powerful movement. Because I kind of just have to laugh uh, when people in the spiritual world, some people every so often you'll be like, oh, did you know that there's no evidence Jesus existed and he could have just been made up? And I'm like, please show me the revolutionarily enlightened person who made up all these profound teachings just to make up a fake person (laughs) and take no credit for like, give me a break, man. To this day, thousands of years later, Jesus's teachings are echoing through time more powerfully than ever. Yeah, no, that You can't make that up. That's not how reality works. So Jesus to me was a man like you and I, who, who had to go through all the same journey of the soul that we go through, had to heal his shadow, had to integrate his humanness and realize that my humanity is divine and there isn't a separation between the human and the divine. And so Jesus basically to me embodied the, in the Course in Miracles, it's called the Christ- which is like, let's say, the spirit of mankind in its most enlightened possible version of itself. The most ascended version of humanity that could exist in consciousness is called the Christ. And that potential for realizing our divinity lives in all of us. And Jesus was a man, again, in the first century of Israel who realized that divinity. And I believe he realized it through whether he traveled to the East in the missing years. That seems likely to me, but I don't know. But at some point, he was either taught or he discovered the great I am within himself. Uh, I like to say, you know, what is God? God is the first person in the present tense. I am, as God came to Moses right at the burning bush. And Jesus speaks from this I am position all through the gospels because that was clearly his identity. He had come to know himself as the eternal consciousness of the universe. And so there's this interesting paradox in the way jesus teaches and speaks to people because when speaking from his humanness or let's say if somebody was speaking to jesus's humanness if they believe that jesus the person just performed a miracle he would say things to them like why do you call me good no one is good but god and of myself i can do nothing and that was his way of teaching those people of i'm not the body you're seeing i'm something beyond the body and then on the other hand when speaking from his divinity He would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So I think that that actually shows the the connection of the human and the divine within us is that the person that we are, the body, the personality, the character is like a ray of light coming from the sun. And in that analogy, we see that a ray is the sun, but nobody would say that the sun is a ray of light or the sun is any one of those rays of light. So that's where Christianity doesn't quite understand oneness and they'll get pissed off at you if you claim oneness with God because they're they're seeing you as saying that I'm a, that that God is a ray of light. If I say I'm one with God, I'm saying God is this person in front of you. When in fact it's the opposite. When Jesus was declaring that he was saying God is all of us. God is everything because we're all just emanations of the divine. And so we can say that the person is divine as well as a person. You know, the person is God as well as a person because a ray of light is a ray as well as the sun. But Jesus also would say, but my father is greater than I. Always pointing to that infinite eternal source, which the sun would represent in this analogy. You know, Jesus came to that conclusion and I think probably was at the limits of the language that was available in first century Judaism. I think if he had had like, If he was in India, you know, teaching these things or or Tibet, uh, they would have been like, oh yeah, totally get it, man. Because they had language for those non-dualistic ideas. Whereas in Israel in the first century, it's this very monolithic, monotheistic view of the divine being separate from us. And, you know, we need to sacrifice animals to appease the angry God. And um, actually a minute ago, when you were speaking about all of the kind of distortions that We see in the spiritual community, uh, there's a a verse in Isaiah that I love, which says, uh, the prophet Isaiah is saying, you do not delight in sacrifices or else I would give them. And that was like the currency of the day, right? You want to appease God? You burn a a lamb or a cow or something. But Isaiah said, you do not delight in sacrifice. Actually, it might be David. Uh, He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Basically humility, right? This sacrifice, oh God, you will not despise. And I think that's so relevant to the conversation we're having here in that what are the what are the sacrifices today in the spiritual world? It's how much do you meditate? How many books have you read? Have you awakened kundalini? Do you do breath work every day? And that's how you show off in the spiritual world. But those are the things that don't appease the divine anywhere near, like humility, service to others, kindness patience, compassion. You know, those are the real spiritual gifts that, that reveal an enlightened being, um, going back to the tree analogy, right? A tree that's full of fruit hangs low because of the weight of the, the fruit it's carrying. And I think a truly enlightened person is humble and doesn't draw attention to themselves, doesn't judge others, doesn't criticize, doesn't brag. And those are the qualities that I'm certainly striving to embody every day, um, as Jesus himself so beautifully demonstrated in the gospels.
0: What a beautiful marriage between those two, right? Because that, that again, what is um, such a big error that gets made that as you raise your frequency and you get further and further away from negative experiences and have more positive experiences, then you think you're so great. Mm-hmm. I'm so great. I'm up here. You're down there. You're just making the, the low frequency error. You just have to climb up to where I am and you'll be good. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and in my experience my lived experience and and the experience of working with other people is that nope the real work it makes you humble yeah right that that that, you know like every day is just like oh little you know and it doesn't mean that you are um you start hate yourself or you put yourself down
1: no no quite the opposite
0: you're getting an amen here (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah no that's beautiful I'm so happy.
1: <laughs> that's why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, oh, you want to follow me? Oh, you want to be my disciple? Well, then you better die to yourself. Mm. It's like die to that ego, that stinky, selfish ego that wants to be right. And when someone disagrees with you, are you going to try to trample them with your opinion? Or when, uh, when you did something selfish and somebody calls you out, are you going to bypass? Oh, no, I didn't do that. You know, that's the ego Jesus was saying you need to die to. And so if Jesus wasn't identified with his ego but but was requiring his disciples to die to that part of themselves first then you know like christianity sees jesus as his ego the person the body that's jesus and jesus himself said that that wasn't who he was and then in fact you had to kill that part of yourself before you could be his disciple so it's just i love how many paradoxes there are in that um the truth over time tends to get twisted and corrupted by man's ego as we that the ego doesn't understand spiritual truth And so when it reads these words of Jesus, I and my father are one, the ego only knowing separation says, all right, so Jesus is the exclusive son of God. Only Jesus was one with God and you're not. So it's now heresy to say that you are when in fact, to an enlightened person to make any claim like that is you claiming it for everybody. Because like what a ridiculous idea that somebody would actually claim this physical body is the only body that is one with God totally yeah. insane. Right. But over time, you know, the ego is going to twist that into what it wants it to mean. Indeed. Indeed.
0: All right. So i got lots of questions here. Um, do you have a time limit by the way, Aaron, I forgot to ask you. I'm okay. good. Okay. Okay. Very good. Cause there's lots of questions in the chat and I, I haven't been ignoring them. I'll just come back to them. Selfishly ask a few more of my own here. And so the death of Jesus is a very big event in the, the Christian narrative, and is that something that you've been able to make sense of? I've I've uh, turned myself inside out, and and I actually did was able to make some sense, and it comes down to a little bit what you're talking about now, just in that oneness and seeing how there, there was a place in the New Testament. I don't know exactly where, where you know, and and Jesus said, "Well, I will, I I will die in the flesh mm-hmm. and be born in the heart of humanity," mm-hmm. and so. How have you, you know, and the whole being saved by death. Yeah. How do you make sense of all of that?
1: Yeah. Well, that, you know, that's the primary thing that I really strive to help Christians see in a different light, because that's the whole crux of the gospel to me is, was Jesus really just a kind of blood meat sacrifice for God to get his violence and wrath out on so he could finally come to forgiveness? Because if that's what you think Jesus was all about, if that's who Jesus came to be, to be the suffering savior, to get murdered on our behalf, then um, we've got a big problem because Jesus never once said that's what his purpose was. Jesus never once said he was going to die for people's sins. Jesus never once said you have to confess me as your Lord and savior if you want to go to heaven. In fact, as inspiring and worshipful as Jesus was, that's not what inspired him you know, he, Jesus didn't accept Jesus into his heart as his personal Lord and Savior, but he was what he was because he knew I and the Father are one. And that's why he became the Christ that echoes through time. And so the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus to me is the central point because it shows who Christ really was. And I have a video that I made years ago when I first started my YouTube channel called We Killed Jesus. And it's all about reading the gospel accounts in Matthew and Luke, especially where it goes through the whole, the trials with Pontius Pilate. And it's like, we're told, I was told in Christianity that God orchestrated this whole murder event for Jesus to fulfill his destiny, to die for our sins. And yet when you read it, it sure seems like people made it happen (laughs) against, you know, against what God's will would be, which is to harm no one. And so you read the the account of Jesus being arrested, you know, betrayed by his disciple for money. And then he goes up, this is just amazing to me. He goes up before Pontius Pilate and they have this amazing conversation about what is truth and who are you? And, and Pontius Pilate comes out of the back room being like, yo, this dude's legit. Like I'm not killing this guy (laughs) because Jesus says all these amazing things and he's not shaken by the experience. And he's like, you would have no power over me if my heavenly father didn't grant it to you. He's like, wow, this guy knows what's up. So he goes out and he's like, hey, I find this guy to be innocent. I'm not killing him. Sorry, Jews, tough luck. And they're like, no, kill him, crucify him. And they're getting angry. It's as the, the crowd was, was getting more stirred up. So Pilate goes back and it's like, oh, what do I do? I got to appease these angry Jews. Like it's a holiday. Maybe I'll do this um, bait and switch technique. So he finds the most horrible criminal he can get his hands on, Barabbas who is a known murderer of Jews in the area, brings out Barabbas and is like, all right, since it's a holiday, you guys have this custom that I release a prisoner to you on a holiday. So which of these two prisoners would you like? Barabbas, the murderer, the serial killer, or Jesus, the Christ? And thinking for sure, they're gonna choose Jesus, right? They're not gonna let us a serial killer loose in their community. (laughs) And what do they say? Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. You're like, whoa. And then it gets even crazier because the next thing that happens is Pontius Pilate comes out one last time and is like, look, I'm not doing this. I will not kill this man. He's innocent. He's blameless. You guys are crazy. You're all a bunch of ideologues. I'm not giving you the blood that you want. And they still are getting angry and getting worked up. And so he says, all right, fine. I wash my hands of him. And they bring out a bowl and Pontius Pilate makes this big demonstration in front of the crowd to like karmically show the universe. I don't want to kill this guy. I wash my hands of this. It's on you. And then he says to the crowd, "Um, his blood is on your hands. And the Jews respond and shout, yes, let his blood be on our hands and our children's hands. So it's like, oh, people killed Jesus, (laughs) not God. People couldn't hang with his message. He He was too much of a radical for them. He was teaching concepts that defied their, their Jewish beliefs and they got tired of it. And they, you know, there was a lot of propaganda sown by the Pharisees and they believed it and they wanted him crucified to get him out of our, out of our city, teaching these heretical things. And so Jesus submits to this whole thing in humility and says, they're not taking my life from me. I give my life to them freely. If they want it, they can have it. You know, that's how open hearted Jesus was. And he goes to the cross and he forgives his murderers while they're murdering him, you know, forgive them. They know not what they do. So all the while, all the way through the crucifixion, Jesus is showing his real message, which is God is, God is not angry with you. God is not judging you. You're the ones doing that. God's heart for you is forgiveness and love and compassion. Jesus demonstrated that on the cross, you know, through his forgiveness. So forgiveness is really the main message. I think Jesus came, to preach to the Jews, especially because they lived in this very like legalistic model that God's angry at us. And we can only appease God's anger by burning animals and things like that. I mean, that's a very pagan ritual that the Jews adopted right over time. Mm -hmm. And Jesus came to be like, guys, you got God all wrong. And that's why he would walk around and say, rise, my child, your sins are forgiven you. He would announce to people, their sins were forgiven before he ever went to the cross. And so what he was saying was God's not holding your trespasses against you. In fact, Paul said that in the new Testament, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not himself to the world. And then it says, and not counting men's trespasses against them. To me, that's the the gospel.
0: Wow. I'm so glad I asked you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can preach on this one, man.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I often saw that, um, the crucifixion. I mean, I will find it horrifying. <clears throat> I couldn't just see a cross and not feel the corruption and the murder and the, and the, you know, the, the takedown.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And couldn't get on board with that twist. Like this was all God's plan and sending the, yeah. the son to die and all of that kind of stuff. It just seemed wrong to me so i i really appreciate the way that you're telling this story and then you know even that separation from god in in the garden of eden and how they want to say god turned away because of the evil that had been demonstrated by adam and eve and and then to me much more uh correct thing is is that god never turns away from us but we turn away from god absolutely uh, Right. And that does create separation. And the deeper and the darker that you get into your own, like, you know, being out of alignment, practicing things that don't um, bring like anything good for life and, and bring people closer to death, then that is the thing that makes it harder to turn towards God again. Right. Mm-hmm. When when you go to God with your with your like feelings of guilt or you know, pain or all of that kind of stuff, it can get harder.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: your likelihood of, of experiencing oneness with God goes way down.
1: (laughs) It sure does. That's why most Christians don't experience oneness with God. The only times I did as a Christian was in worship uh, services, just pouring my heart out to God. I would finally feel a connection and the love. But then outside of that, you have the religious ego always talking to you. You're a bad little boy. You're thinking bad little thoughts. Shame on you. Forgive, ask for forgiveness, or you're going to be judged. And so you're always living under that wet blanket of guilt and religious burden and stuff. But I I love that you brought up the garden of Eden, because even in that story, we see the real narrative that that story, that that archetype of that story is trying to show us is that when God creates man, what does God say? Let us create man in our own image and likeness. So let's make man with our very same nature. And so the original sin to me, was not the eating of the apple in the sense of like, oh, I broke a rule, God said. That's the first sin. The first sin is when the serpent tells Eve, if you eat this tree, you will become like God. And she believes it, says, well, I want to be like God, very innocent, pure desire to have, but the sin was to believe that she wasn't already like God, right? the separation in, in my consciousness that I'm not like God. So I have to do something to be like God, to be accepted by God, to be one with God. So the eating of the apple represents all of religion, everything man ever does to try to earn love from God or acceptance from God or forgiveness from God. It's the, uh, the spiritual punishment we put ourselves through, you know, that's what the eating of the apple represents. And what what's the first mistake that led to the eating of the apple? I'm not like God. So I have to earn that. I have to do something. And there's the forgiveness message of Jesus, right? No, no, no. You guys got it twisted from the garden, man. God's not holding your trespasses against you. You're holding your trespasses against you.
0: Boom. <laughs> there you go. Oh, fantastic. This is so fun. I love it. Okay, I'm going to turn towards the chat now and uh, and see if uh, there's some questions. If you guys could repeat them. I'm sorry, because it's been pretty active in here. Um, someone talking about evil. This, this I didn't go super deep into this, because that debate can go on and on, and it is I theological, and but evil is the measure of how far we've brought ourselves away from God. Yeah, yeah. That's ignorance cute. of
1: God. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. I would say because I guess I didn't close the loop on that. When I say evil doesn't exist, what I'm really saying is there is no second power, right? That can oppose God's power. God is not duking it out with evil, which Christians believe, by the way, right? We we used to believe that that everyone that's not a confessing Christian goes to hell forever. And so, you know, at best we could say that maybe a quarter of the world is a confessing Christian. It's probably a lot less than that. But let's say a quarter. Best case scenario, the devil beats God three to one. You know what I mean? Devil takes 75% of God's children into eternal torment. Great victory for God there. Woo, what a conqueror. It's like, what a pathetic image of God that that paints. And it's painting this idea that there is a second power called evil or the devil that God has to fight in war against to gain his kingdom back. And in the kingdom of heaven, there is no second power. There's just God's power which is acting everywhere. But again, God gives us the free will to use our God power as we will it. And so we can use it for good or evil, meaning we can use it in the knowledge of God, love, service to others, or we can use it in the ignorance of God, which is control, attack, separation. But there's only one power that can be used in the universe. And so evil would have to be a independently existing thing, like a second God or something. And Christianity very much paints it like that, right? With the devil archetype, the devil lives in hell and he's always trying to foil God's plans and often does and, you know, really pulls one over on God pretty often. And God's like, man, that crafty devil just keeps getting the better of me. And God's always trying to get his children back. It's this insane picture that I got so sick of as a Christian because it just, what does that say about God, right? It, It paints this very pathetic, fragile, delicate image of God. And I think in our hearts, we all know that that's not true even in, even in fundamentalist Christianity, but it's when you're in a cult, when you're in a belief system where everybody believes the same thing, it's hard to die to that self and admit that I've been in this false belief system for my whole life. So like, I have total compassion on Christians who like refuse to question their beliefs. It's scary. And I was there for a while. Um, but all that matters is that I came to the point that I was willing to do that. And, uh, thank God I did.
0: Great answer. I love that. Um, the The presence of evil is something that, like, first of all, I, I didn't believe in evil. I really didn't. And then I came across like face to face with it and people who had been through it. But I still agree with what you're saying. And at the practical level, what I notice, uh, you know, because I've faced a lot of demons in my life. And I mean, in mm-hmm. some ways, literal, not just mm-hmm. challenges and hardships, but like literally getting um, what by all appearances... Mm-hmm seems to be something from outside of myself coming towards me. But I've learned to deal with it incredibly quickly and easily. And then in the last year's calling on Jesus, it's pretty much instantaneous. Is is Jesus in the house here? And then could he handle this for me? Thanks. I'm going to go to sleep now. (laughs) And, um, and, and, but, you know, at the end of the day, on the practical side, what I noticed is that if you treat it to be other than you, and you get really invested in an outside force, coming at you, then you might not be able to make use of the technique and the tool of treating it to be an expression of you, which I can't prove is true, just mm-hmm. that it works. Yeah. Right? So whether I'm I'm aware of my own inner fear or I'm aware of this thing coming at me in the night, the, the tools are the same. And so then I don't need to get wrapped up as much in in the theology side of it but yeah. I do appreciate very much what you're what you're saying and yeah the innocent till proven guilty we, it, it it is that you can't not see how the the punitive nature of christianity the punishing nature mm-hmm. and the rewarding nature like this is the hook that humanity is on of trying to avoid punishment and and gain reward yeah and be in that I know you've talked a lot about uh, duality in your own, um, uh, talks and, and interviews and that kind of thing. And, and that is definitely one of those dualities that we are trapped in. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, religion is really just a projection of man's ego onto God. We make a God in our own image. And, uh, that was, um, one of the other troubling arguments that woke me up pretty quick to the, the, just the backwardsness of everything was that I would have this conversation with my Christian friends Cause like, I wanted to like, please bring me back into the cult, man. I'm open. Like, you got to make sense of this for me though. And I would say, you know, would you ever for any reason subject your child to eternal conscious torment? And then before I could even finish the sentence, of course, I would never do such a thing. What, what a crazy question to ask. Great. I'm with you. Then please explain to me why you believe that God does that to his kids. And the the answer was always, well, brother, his ways are higher than our ways. And that really would agitate me because I'm like, you see what you're saying and what you're implying? You're implying that God, like we're compassionate. We're loving. We're so good and we would never, but God does. God's more violent than us. God's more wrathful than us. God's less forgiving than us. That's what you're saying when you use that verse that way. And it's the opposite. That verse means the opposite. It means our ways our violence you know like if we have a god made in our image that's the violent wrathful unforgiving god who needs to have a blood meat sacrifice to forgive people but if we have a god whose ways are mercy and compassion and forgiveness and eternal love then we have a god whose ways are higher than our ways you know nobody would argue that humanity's way has not been violence throughout our history and re- revenge and punishment that's the human story so what do you what do you mean god's ways are higher in, in that sense, you know, God's ways are so much higher that it's offensive to our ego.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There you go. Beautiful. Yeah. it's. A, and then who told all those stories, right? Those were, the, were in fact, the violent conquerors right, telling the history of, of humanity. Well, it's not certainly not all of humanity. And it might, in fact, be uh, a, quite a small number of them compared to the masses of us who, if given a chance to do good, will do good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Elizabeth. She's let's see if I pull this up. So you've studied a great deal. What about ancient history, which involves nephilim, Anunnaki, which uh, gods came to Earth to create hybridized humans? Do you have any take on that? No doubt. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, I definitely don't claim to know anything that's you know that's truly happened in the past. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that there's a lot of uh, possibility to the idea. That you know, extraterrestrials may have um, altered the DNA of humans in ancient past um, for a number of reasons. One of them would be the the big anomaly in in biology of how did the human brain like double or triple in size in such a short period of time? We don't see brain growth anywhere near that spectrum anywhere else in the animal kingdom. And uh, there's other theories about it could have been through psychedelics that caused that to happen. But it's to me, it's just as likely. Knowing that we live in an infinite universe that's just populated with life everywhere, uh, that ETs probably were trying to speed up the evolutionary process of the ancient hominids or whatever. And I think it's cool to, to talk about. It's a cool subject. I can't know for sure, but I think if the Bible is alluding to something through that verse, it's probably an ancient world way of, you know, referring to that idea.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. There's so much that it's amazing when people will argue about
1: that stuff because
0: no one can know anything.
1: <laughs> Just. What a waste of energy, huh?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, definitely repeat your questions. Let me see if I can find, um, <clears throat> if we go back a little bit to the male, female, um, he, she's saying, or PK is saying, in Kabbalah, Eve is sy- symbolic of our physicality, our sexual components. Adam can be symbolic of thought and mind. Hence, Eve tempting Adam makes sense in this
1: context. You're nodding your head there. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm, divine mm-hmm. feminine, divine masculine.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting with those two archetypes because they are universal. They're present. Oh, sorry. Do you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Yeah, they're present at every possible level in nature. You can't. Uh, we didn't invent that. that. That, that to me is infrastructure God put in, that masculine and feminine, and uh, it was in the last couple of years how I was able to see the parallel, that, and and not just the parallel, but the identical nature of the masculine, and the feminine, and then given the studies uh, of the law, and you know how are we in all this trouble? The the public and the private,
1: mm-hmm.
0: those two archetypes, the left brain and the right brain. You got those Mm -hmm. those two archetypes and how, you know, they've been pitted, of course, against each other. But in reality, you actually can't separate them. Yeah. So I started naming them one archetype, masculine, feminine. It's not two. Right. Right. And even the marriage is a kind of uh, illusion of sorts. But but it's the experience as they come together and you use the word unity, which I actually have uh, I take offense to because it's been so weaponized now in, in the truth side of the world, it's become narrative unity. Mm -hmm. And, and everybody's, you you could hear it like at every turn, people had this message of unity. And then guess what? The globalists have that message too. They want to, they want to unify and homogenize and bring us all together. And there's no male and there's no female well, to me, that's the biggest assault on God's, again, infrastructure, like trying to oh, cancel yeah. cancel the order. So I don't know if you want to say anything more about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, how, how can you call that unity when it's the denial of reality? You can't have unity while you're denying what's real and what's true. I think what, what they mean when they say unity is unity of belief system. We all believe the same things. We all live the same way. That's unity um, to them. And I think what would be a a great dynamic to touch on in this conversation is this concept of the positive polarity in consciousness and the negative polarity. This is something that the law of one teaches that really illuminated my awareness of the world. And it teaches that just like quantum particles, let's say um, electrons are negatively charged. We know that protons are positively charged particles. Every particle in the quantum world has to have a charge in order to do work. Is what it's called in um quantum mechanics work means like the ability to create change in your environment so unless a particle has a charge it can't do work so it needs to gain a charge and the law of one says you and i are like that people are like that every being in the universe is like a particle that's trying to gain a charge and there's only two charges available positive or negative negative. and so the positive charge and this happens through the energy centers by activating them The more you activate the energy centers, the more positive charge you gain and the more work you can do. You can be a healer, a guide, a teacher, right? You can help be of service more, but then on the negative path, you can become negatively polarized as well. And what's interesting about that is that the law of one says you become negatively polarized by completely shutting off the heart chakra. And that's actually a really hard thing to do. It's very difficult to completely shut off the heart chakra. And so there's different, um, what I would consider negatively polarized belief systems or religions in the world, such as Freemasonry, for example. If you study Freemasonry, you'll find out that they have these levels. Every negatively polarized structure is always like a pyramid. It's a top-down structure. It's a hierarchy or a, a pecking order of some sort. And so as you go up the levels, you do more and more increasingly drastic things to become less and less sensitive to unity with others, more separative. So at level 20, let's say a Freemasonry, it'll say like um, kill a small animal and feel no remorse. You know, there's one of the practices. I think in the mid twenties, they, they say you need to slit the throat of a pig and drink its blood and feel no remorse. And eventually it's kill a person and feel no remorse at the top levels And it's this act of gradually shutting off the heart, um, feeling less and less connected to others. And it's all about becoming the God of your own universe, that you're here to conquer it and put it under your heel and make it what you want it to be. And so in, in the world we see, the institutions that run our world, the corporations that run our world, they're all negatively polarized structures that are being run by negatively polarized people. And how do you know that Aaron, how do you know that they're negatively polarized? Well, look at all the things that they do. Uh, like for example, we just saw in my opinion, I know this is a hot topic right now, but, um, I've studied a lot about the Israel defense system and have just as a Christian, we were like super pro Israel. And like, we would be amazed at all the miracles of the Um, Israeli defense system and all the technologies that they come up with. And we just cheered Israel on all the time. And I love Israel, the people of Israel, but um, there's no way you're going to ever convince me that what 300 Hamas terrorists somehow got across the most sophisticated military border on earth that has literally AI machine guns and heat seeking missiles and night vision everywhere and tons of soldiers guarding every crevice and corner of that uh, territory. There's no way 300 terrorists got across the border, unleashed hell for six hours, and then skipped back across the border. To me, clearly, the Israeli government had a part in that. And I think what, when you look at the landscape of what was happening politically, there was, there was an uprising happening in Israel. A lot of the Jewish citizens were very upset at their government a lot of that coming from what happened in the pandemic and what they were subjected to, but just basically the leadership of Israel, they were like, we don't agree with you. We don't like you. We're thinking about overthrowing you. And so the Israeli government most likely said, we got to do something to get rid of this problem. Let's call attention somewhere else. Let's get the people pissed off about another problem. So they'll take their eyes off of us. And what other thing can you do than a big travesty of, you know, a few thousand people getting killed, get them, get them in their anger, get them in their animal energy, and that's what happened. So when you see these wars, when you see the amount of child trafficking that happens through governments and big corporations, there's no way anyone with an active heart chakra can participate in those things. So there's many beings on our planet who've chosen the negative polarity in consciousness, and you can call that evil if you want loosely, because it's definitely a phenomenon of the universe that some beings choose not to walk the path of unity. They choose to walk the path of separation and control and power over. And the universe allows them to do that because we need the contrast. Again, we need the contrast of darkness to understand the light in our true nature of light and to have meaning to, to give love meaning. But I think it's, it's really like enlightening to know that although at some point, Uh, the law of one says the negative polarity has to reverse before it can merge back with the creator. It has to become positive again at the sixth density out of seven. It can't progress past the sixth density because what they teach in the law of one is it's ultimately a path of illusion. It's a path created in the mind. It denies reality and truth. So it can't go on forever, but it can sort of play in the universe in that illusion for a while. And so when we see these horrible things happening to me, it's just beings who have chosen to neglect truth, who've chosen to ignore truth, ignore oneness, because they want to enjoy the dark side. And you know, that's their choice. But I'm for sure going to continue choosing light and trying to be a demonstration to the world that there are two choices and only two choices. And you can't just be in that middle ground of not choosing one or the other, or you're going to be used by the negative path. (laughs) Because, The positive polarity is the path of love and unity. They will never infringe on a being's free will, but the negative path is the opposite and they thrive and gain power by infringing on free will and deceiving people and controlling them. So if you don't make a absolute 100% decision for the light, you better believe the darkness is coming for you and they're going to control you in some way. And, you know, most of us didn't even know until the pandemic that our phones are controlling us. The media is controlling us. The internet's controlling us. Now we see the tentacles everywhere from the dark path that they've put their hooks into humanity. And so most of us have been pulling those hooks out of us ever since 2020 began. And I'm still finding ways that I unknowingly sort of give my power to darkness without knowing it, because again, that's how they survive is that deception and that manipulation.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's interesting because they're they're doing everything possible to not have a level playing field, and and that's one of the things that I think God went out of His way in creation to to level the playing field because this is what I notice is that you know as as you raise up on the on the spiritual path, then like we talked about, you know that that lower part gets um, gets created. But it becomes harder and harder. Like The higher you go up, the, it becomes harder and harder to see yourself mm-hmm. and to feel that you, you're not in in grave amounts of pain anymore, and you don't have circumstances blowing up in your life to yeah. prove to you that you've got the negativity around you. And so you don't see it, right? It, it, you, you don't see it. So it's, totally.
1: it's,
0: you could say it's equally as hard for the high-frequency person as it is for the low-frequency part. Some Some days I'll even say, it's harder. It is harder. Mm-hmm. right it's harder because yeah. of the invisibility you don't know you have work to do and you feel you feel high you feel good so what's why would you do any uh mm-hmm. anything work about that right so that's yeah. exactly
1: right yeah. in fact got- the law the law one says the negative polarity allowed for beings all throughout the universe to evolve much faster because they say that um for a long time in the universe before the negative polarity was thought of Uh, everything in the universe apparently is an experiment the creator runs and it just keeps creating new experiments to see how it goes and at some point before the negative polarity there was positively polarized beings everywhere that basically had no reason to evolve because everything's great they know they're one with the creator and they said it was like children in school who are not punished for not doing their homework but they're also not rewarded for doing it so they just play in the playground you know so there's a blessing to the darkness in that sense that it gives us the motivation to grow and to seek and to heal, and that's how we know ourselves, right?
0: Right. I might just be picky here, but I I, I really feel like that that motivation doesn't come from there. I think I think we uh, get motivated in spite of it, and that so this is just, I'm just positing it. And maybe I'll tell you another day, but that we can be truly motivated from love. And it was one of my awakenings when I was struggling for my life 20 years ago, <clears throat> that I was doing all of the positive things for myself, for my health, for, you know, physical, could be therapies or choices for food and and um, medicine, all that kind of thing. But I was still a dying person. And so I started to look underneath at the the motive that was coming from it. So if I'm doing all the good, positive things, but out of ultimately a fear of not existing, then I was literally drawing not existing into me, or you know, whatever that means, death. <clears throat> and uh, and then so learning to be motivated by uh, a pure source, I think that you know we won't lose our. I think we won't lose our motive as as we have less and less of our own negative energy around we shouldn't lose our motive i think that's the mistake is that everybody goes to sleep when they're comfortable mm-hmm. and it's what you've said throughout the interview that your it's your will to serve that will create the hardship that you need <laughs> mm-hmm. if you if you need hardship it will create some struggle it will create challenges it will create things that you have to overcome for the sake of turning around and and serving others um, but that it could still be moved by love. So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, I, I agree. Love is definitely the prime mover and the prime motive. I think what I'm touching on is that they call the negative path. Um, they say that the negative polarity provides catalyst for the positive polarity. It gives gives us a reason to love. It gives us more of an ability to love because while the negative path is out here trying to inflict all this suffering, we have now more reason to want to be of service. So it's kind of like a a smack on the butt type of thing of like, come on, work on yourself, evolve. Because if there's just love and nothing else, there's not even really a concept of evolution because everything's already perfect, you know, but when we see what the darkness does, it awakens us to the importance of love, the power of love. And I think it, it shows us that love really is the purpose of everything. And, gives us that motivation to want to seek for love. In a sense, at least here in the 3D realm, we may not even have a word for love if darkness didn't exist in any way. It would just be like, you know, if you're in a white room your whole life and the color black was never introduced, if someone asked you what white was, you wouldn't really know how to, you wouldn't have an answer. But if black is introduced, now you, you know what white is too by the contrast of it. So that's all that's really implying but i agree that it's not the the darkness itself is motivation it's that it gives us motivation for the light
0: right and when you when you think about being made in god's image and and god's not using a contrast like there the, god's not coming from a contrast god just like bring this is my beautiful world look at this realm it's right so so i think we're the same anyway i won't i won't go into any uh, need to argue or anything like that but um There's one question, SV Saint. How long does it take for the beings who choose the dark side to see the light and take back their heart? What would you say about that? Fun question. Yeah.
1: So what it says is that, so again, we're in the third density of consciousness moving into the fourth. In fact, they say that the 2012 Mayan calendar thing was really pointing to the planet transitioning into the next density level of consciousness or the age of Aquaria. And that transition requires... 51% or more of the planet to be actively choosing the positive polarity, service to others. We want to be a planet of light and love, not darkness and separation. And that's when we will polarize officially to the positive and become fourth density positive. But let's say if our planet wanted to be negative, the planet would need to reach 95% or greater negative polarization to graduate to fourth density negative. And that goes for the individual as well. If I want to graduate to fourth density positive in my next lifetime, I have to make at least 51% or higher service to others orientation. And the negative path, if I want to graduate to the negative in my next lifetime, I have to become 95% or more negatively polarized. And you say, wow, it's much harder on the negative path. But Ross says, no, it's actually not. To reach either one of those grades is equally challenging meaning it's just as hard to become 51% uh, lovingly oriented as it is 95% selfishly oriented because we have this thing called the ego that drives us to be selfish and, and arrogant and prideful. And so we have already a driver pushing us to the negative, which again creates the contrast that consciousness needs to wake up to love. And so they say that when beings become negatively polarized, they go to fourth density negative, and then they eventually go to fifth density negative. And then it's at the beginning of the sixth density, which correlates to the third eye center, that they finally realize they can't progress any more negative. They kind of run into a brick wall and eventually concede to the path of light and reverse their polarity. And so if you want to know like a time a timetable for that, what the law one lays out is that the, the fourth density usually takes around 30 million years on a planet to graduate to fifth. Fifth will take about 50 million years or so. And then sixth density is about 75 million years. So we're talking about a long time that these souls stay negatively polarized, but at some point they can't, they can't finish their soul's journey as a negative soul. They have to reverse to the positive.
0: Yeah. To me, it, it does seem like, uh, I know it's a cliche, but God wins in the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, John, hello. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. How about Matthew 622 and its relationship with the mind's eye and pineal glands? Do you want me to look that up or do you know the...
1: I believe the- that's the, if you make your eye single, your whole body will be full of light. I could be wrong, but I think that's probably the verse.
0: Yeah. That sounds right to me. I'll look it up quickly. Yeah. But if you could talk about that one, because that's great too. <laughs>
1: That verse to me is Jesus teaching about having like non-dual awareness, having the awareness of oneness. If you make your eye single, meaning if you just see one thing, which of course is God, then your whole body is full of light. But if you make your eye dual or um, what does it say in the verse? It actually,
0: it's, is it the same one? It says the eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, if your eyes,
1: <laughs> Darn it. Yeah,
0: yeah, but that's a good one. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Oh, no,
1: there it is. It's the same? Same one, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, it's just um, translation.
1: That, not sure what that translation is, but in the like King James or New King James, it says if yeah. you make the eye single. Um, eye be single. Yeah, and I, I believe in the Greek, it says if you make the eye one or single. So, yeah, it's just pointing to me of uh, transcending duality.
0: Right. It's got oneness all over it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I was saying, I couldn't even open the Bible and not have some evidence of oneness. So they're
1: always talking about oneness. It's all over the place, man. How
0: can you you even see past that?
1: It's amazing. And uh, what's the classic verse? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one.
0: Mm -hmm. How much more
1: clear could that be, right?
0: (laughs) I know. I know. Exactly. All right. Let's see what else we have here. Any other questions? If you guys, oh yeah, uh, what is the law of one uh, uh, planetary scripture? Now I want you to know, is this coming from Flat Smack yeah. Biblical? Wait, there, there are, are more flat earthers around here than, than the other way around. And, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I don't, uh, I don't attack anybody. It's not my soapbox or uh, yeah. any hill to die on for Same. me. But you can't prove, you can't prove that globe to me. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all.
1: I did a debate with Flat Earth Dave and a few other people ah. a few months ago. Oh, he's uh, a friend. Yeah, nice. months ago. Yeah, oh, great good. guy. I love him. He is. But it was, it was hilarious.
0: <laughs> yeah? Did it go well?
1: Yeah, it was great. Um, it was my friend, myself and a friend of mine, and then we had like three – we didn't set it up right. There was way too many Flat Earthers compared to Jason and I, and so it was like they got to talk like 60% of the time, and we didn't get to like even a fraction of the points we were going to ask about. So it was just like talking past each other for the most part, but we really enjoyed each other's company and had a great time. Um, to answer his question, the law of one is a channeled text. You won't like it because it says that the planet is a sphere, but uh, it's a channeled text from the 1980s from a, a being named Ra, and they identify themselves as Ra because they were apparently the, the extraterrestrial civilization that came to the Egyptians about 11,000 years ago and built the pyramids with them and all of that. So they, they identify themselves the way that the Egyptians called them back then, which was Ra, the sun god. They don't actually call themselves that, but that's the name that they go by in the book. And they are what they call a sixth density social memory complex, which is a lot of fancy jargon for a collective consciousness. And so what's cool is they say they are the, the civilization that evolved on Venus about 2 billion years ago. And uh, what's cool is in 2019, um, there was a study that came out, I don't know if it was from NASA or whoever, but they said that they, after studying Venus, they figured out that Venus was definitely in the Goldilocks zone about 2 billion years ago, and almost certainly had some form of life for a long time before they left the Goldilocks zone. And now the planet's not habitable anymore. And- What's the Goldilocks zone? I haven't heard that. The Goldilocks zone is like the distance around the sun that allows for life to thrive If you're too close, the planet's too hot. And if you're too far from the sun, the planet's too cold and icy. So there's like a Goldilocks zone that allows for life, uh, at least our form of life, who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, So in the 80s, this text was channeled and Ra throughout 106 different sessions, basically shares with them as they ask about Ra that they were the civilization on Venus that was a very harmonious, very loving civilization. And if you know astrology, that lines up with what Venus represents as a planet energetically. And they evolved all the way through the sixth density very quickly and harmoniously. And now they, they hang out in the solar system to be of service to us and other planets. But they came to the Egyptians apparently 11,000 years ago to teach them the law of one, that all is one. There's only one God and we're all an extension of that God. And they said the Egyptians kind of eventually weaponized that and they weren't evolved enough to teach it purely but it was used for the elites and to create, you know, hierarchies and stuff. So they were like, "Ah, we should bounce from this planet at this point." And they said, "We've been looking and surveying your planet ever since to find a group that we could communicate this law to again to kind of make up for the karma we created um 11,000 years ago." So they're like, "We're just here to teach you about the universe as we see it." And it's this really beautiful kind of question and answer text of uh, 106 sessions where they just ask These beings, this kind of group mind, which is called a social memory complex, just about what the universe is and uh, how evolution works, how reincarnation works. And they give them that seven densities model and a bunch of really cool um, blueprints. So, you know, whether you're a flat earther or a round earther, I highly recommend checking it out because actually what's funny is flat earth Dave loves the love one. And um, he said he put my love one video series in his app, which I thought was awesome.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's always way more points of agreement than there are conflict when you get right down to yeah. it. Eh? Uh, so I want to also ask about densities and it was partly due to having watched that frequencies movie and wondering about mm. this, you know, because they, they were, it, I don't want to spoil it too much, but that you got the two, two um, sides of the you, got the, you got the high frequency people. Well, interesting. They portrayed the high frequency people as the heartless ones without without feelings whoa so really fun really fun and and it and it kind of it kind of fits with my findings too right that as you as you as you um raise now now this might not be the true raising of the frequency but as you as you skip out of the you know, the lower emotions say if we're talking more scale than chakras, oh i see
1: what you're saying
0: grief fear lust anger and then, and then, and then, you tend to default into courage, acceptance, and peace, mm-hmm. which we love and we get attached to, but can very much have fear programming underneath it in disguise. I know I've seen this hundreds of times myself. And then, and then, and then, the question of density. As now, I'm assuming, do you do you treat a high frequency to be low density? Is that is that true?
1: Um, it's actually the opposite. And so what's cool about this is that um, the word density is referring to the amount of light that's being contained in a given space. So it really refers to the the frequency of the photon, how fast it's vibrating. I'll say like, if I have a photon over here that vibrates a hundred times per second, and then a photon over here that vibrates a million times per second, this photon has way more density of light than this one does brighter, more radiant. And so a density, the densities increase as the chakras go because they're each chakra is denser with light. And so at first, when you said they don't have emotions, I thought you meant they don't feel love. They don't feel peace or joy or gratitude. And I was like, Oh, that's definitely not the model that I teach. But um, I think what you're referring to is the lower emotions of fear, shame, guilt, that those have been sort of transcended, right?
0: Just in in the sake of the movie, it was it was a zero, like not no no low emotions, no high emotions. Yeah. So this true. is a different model.
1: Well, that's not far off, actually. Um ascended beings are fully integrated. So they don't get thrown off their center positively or negatively. Ascended beings are able to feel great emotions within, like great joy, gratitude, love, but outwardly they're not like having some ecstatic state about it. They're very calm and poised and it's because they're embodied in that emotion. Right? So you might say that ascended beings may not have as much emotionality as humans do. And that's very true, but um, it's definitely my experience and understanding that the um, positively polarized emotions, if we want to call them that uh, are what bring us into higher polarization. So the more love I can access, the more joy I can access, the more gratitude I can access, the more I can raise my frequency higher. Whereas if I'm feeling shame, depression, guilt, that's going to take my frequency lower.
0: Right. Right. And, and then in, in my world, as you raise your frequency, you make it more possible to do the hard healing work of, of uh, going through. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's why, that's why, um, you you do need to it it is part of the equation you need to raise your frequency if you don't you're just simply the likelihood of you healing is not going to happen and turning That's around and really being in service thanks kim kim devries i i did a talk at soulshine i called it uh, ascension myth busting i'm going to be speaking at anarchapoco oh, nice. in uh, february giving uh, a similar talk for specifically for king heroes because the whole ascension of of not only uh, the spiritual life but also the the life of power and creation and and uh, leadership and all of that kind of thing. There's there are lots of pitfalls. So uh, thank you so much. And and you're listening to Aaron's integration of the loved one. Yeah, nice. It all it all comes together. And when you're looking for connection rather than division, you always find it.
1: Absolutely, man. And yeah. I love hearing different points of view. It's so fun.
0: It really is. I'm the same way. Like I want the truth. I, I'm not here to yeah. be all right because I don't get
1: anything that way. <laughs> right. And the truth isn't threatened by anything.
0: That's it. Exactly. You got it. Yep. Yeah, it's just fun. Well, this has been a great conversation. I really love it. Uh, I bet there's a lot more that we could go into deeper. So maybe there'll be another (coughs) uh, opportunity for us in the future. And uh, thank you, Gloria. I I, uh, appreciate your feedback. And so how do you work with people if they're looking for help in their spiritual life? uh, do Do you help people that are just starting out and beginning to ask hard questions? Or where, where do you find is your um, sweet spot as a teacher?
1: Yeah, well, my YouTube channel is the main outlet of my service to the world in just putting out teachings and videos that help people understand their mind better, help people understand their ego better. And in fact, the book that I'm um, getting ready to publish probably in the next six months is called The Three Beliefs of Ego. Mm. And it talks about the, the three kind of root negative core beliefs that the ego has. And of course they correlate to the lower three energy centers, but basically the belief in lack. Uh, The second belief is the attachment to outcomes, the attachment to external things to fulfill me. Uh, And then the third belief is the belief in control that I can control life or I can control reality. So I, for the first few years on YouTube, I really focused more heavily on that teaching And uh, because it's just a framework that helps people to understand their ego so much better in that there really isn't such a thing as an ego, like an entity living in my mind. It doesn't exist like that. It's just a collection of negative core beliefs that run me and pretend to be me. And I think I am these beliefs until, of course, I transcend them and find that they were always illusions. So I really love helping people just understand their mind better and master their mind in terms of real self-knowledge coming to know the deeper dimension of themselves, And uh, now I have a few programs where I do that. One is, uh, have you heard of A Course in Miracles? Yes. Okay. So one is an ACIM program, which I really love. And then the other one is more of the Law of One-based stuff, which is called 4D University, of course, standing for Fourth Density University. And I kind of just lay out my framework framework of the Law of One teachings of how we actually raise our consciousness from third to fourth density or how we activate the heart chakra. Uh, The idea is that all human beings are born with the first three energy centers in activation, red, orange, yellow, that's the ego. But we need to earn the green, the the heart chakra, uh, through spiritual discipline and spiritual ascension, if you want to call it that. So that's the real work to me is practicing uh, loving relationship with everything, humility, service to others. The stuff that really integrates and activates the heart is – the stuff you might say most people don't want to do, right? Forgiveness work, service to others, humility. Uh, but that, to me, is where you get the most bang for your buck.
0: It really is. I totally agree with that. So, well, thank you very much. I appreciate this conversation a lot. And uh, I knew I always just follow my spidey senses when I heard you talk to Cal. I'm like, I need to talk to that guy.
1: I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah. Likewise.
0: Likewise. Yeah. And you. And thank you very much for sharing out my interview with Cal as well. I think a lot of people found him and me mm-hmm. through you so that's awesome shout out to cal he's awesome yeah. He this, and yeah yeah it's a real powerhouse out there they're going strong going hard i right know, now. I'm loving it yeah yeah uh billing tony you just asked if an was still on and i've been following that closely if uh, if you didn't know Acapulco got hit are you familiar with an by the way aaron mm-hmm. it's an event that's been uh, i believe that this is the the 10th anniversary And it runs in Acapulco, and it's, you know, it's the anarchists, but it's the high-frequency, high-density anarchists, I'll say. Yeah, yeah, because they're not a bunch of ragers against the machine. They're more like entrepreneurs, and uh, they're seeing, you know, what is the value that I can offer and and have that be a way that I control my life compared to having the controllers control them through other means. And uh, it's a beautiful conference. I spoke just before the world went confluey in 2020, (laughs) <laughs> uh, we're just starting to mask on the way home and you're going like, huh, what's going on here? Yeah. And, uh, and they're having me back again this year. And then they got hit uh. dead on with a so-called hurricane with no rain, a two hour, 200 mile an hour wind that pff, just like flattened the whole thing. Whoa. And, uh, and then Jeff and his, whole team there have been getting resources the community has donated more than three hundred thousand dollars already and they're daily getting resources to people and it's actually from the last update i saw last night it's very quickly rising from the ashes
1: yes because the community
0: is because the community is working together not just them you know they're not even taking credit it's beautiful they're not trying to take credit for everything People just working together—they—they they will for the positive, for the life force—and—and uh, and there they go. Like there's already restaurants opening and all of those kind of things. So, my bet right now is a Narcopulco is happening because I'm pretty sure they're going to go to that exact resort and help them put their pieces back together. Um, you know, Amazing. so yeah, yeah. And their infrastructure tends to be in stone too, so a lot—a lot of glass is gone, but—but but the structures I've, I oh, saw are there.
1: When was that?
0: Uh, it was the 25th of October, and there was zero warning. They they always have a, a week or two warning for any hurricane. Yeah. It was the first hurricane ever to hit a city. They never do that.
1: Yeah, it, like it, off in, the coast.
0: That's right. They never yeah. do that. Yeah, and so people went to bed, and and then 1 a.m. kabloom. You know, like everything wow. just blew up on them. But uh, but yeah, it's it's gone very well, and. Thank you. So we, th- you can still donate to them. And I have a feeling that would be very, I felt very happy to donate on behalf of uh, me <laughs> and my hope that I go there because they put me on the main stage. So I'm like, yeah, Yay! that's going to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good. But uh, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. It was a fantastic conversation. I do hope everybody goes over to your website, AaronAbke.com. Check out the YouTube channel that we shared a link uh, while well, back now in the chat of your uh, channel. Lots of good videos. there, shorts and longs. You want to do it one more time?
1: Yeah. It's just, here's the link. Just my name, youtube.com slash Aaron Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Easy.
0: Yeah. So jump over there. And then if this is your time to whether, you know, transition out of uh spirituality that was very confusing and into one that's more righteous and uh service oriented which is a beautiful thing because that can be really void in the in the spiritual communities yeah. those normal ones so i have a lot of respect for that and uh yeah definitely go take them up i'm excited about your book can you let me know when when you're publishing and i'll have you on again to i to, would love uh, to
1: absolutely to Yeah. It. thank you okay.
0: okay yeah you're very welcome and uh, i'll send you one of mine if you'd like to yes please yeah. okay all right okay everyone i uh, i love you guys a lot and i look forward to seeing you when it was my next interview now coming up mm. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Soon.
0: Soon. That's right. Soon. I'm sure there's something. Uh, actually, Dr. Melissa Sell. If you're. Oh, familiar I love with her. Melissa. Yeah, yeah. She just agreed to an interview. It's not. It's not this coming week. The one after. So I, I'll still have uh, a. I guess probably next week. Nice. Maybe share She's Rothwell amazing. Time. Yeah, isn't she like a bright light? Just a little little pixie. She looks like she's twelve Absolutely, years old, but man. a lot of wisdom and experience already. And so yeah, yeah. I love her work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's awesome, and uh, so are you. Thank you very much once again. It's been thank a pleasure. You as
1: well, Beth, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. you're Lots very welcome. Of
0: love. All right, bye for now, everyone.